y'all. Welcome to the Sweet Tea Series. I'm your host, Taylor Dawson, the creative director here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Ariana Silva. Hey, everyone. I'm very excited for today's conversation, actually. Yeah. yeah. And we are also joined by our amazing guest, Erin Valdez. She's the policy director for higher education here at the foundation. Howdy, y'all. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so uh, you guys actually had a really fun time uh, up in the kitchen testing out some fun college recipes. So let's head up, let's head up to the fifth floor and check out that super yummy dish that all college students tend to eat on a budget. Hey everyone, welcome back. And Erin, are you ready to get started with what we're doing today? Absolutely. We have some food and a drink in front of us. Tell us what we're what we're gonna be eating and drinking. Uh, we're eating ramen. Okay. Um, it's my favorite brand. And in addition to the ramen, I mm -hmm. always add brisket. I think it's a great addition to add a little protein to the to the meal. And then of course I always add sriracha at the end to tie it all together. And that I haven't put in mine yet, so okay. I'm gonna go ahead and <laughs> put some sriracha in. I Perfect. love sriracha. Thanks. I hadn't actually heard about the brisket thing though. That's that's a new one for me. Yeah, I mean it you know, authentic ramen would have uh, like pork belly or something yeah. like that, which is a similar consistency of meat. Mm -hmm. And so brisket's kind of the best analogy for Texas. And so I just, I love nice. this. Love this and you do the higher education work here I at do. the foundation, yeah. which I, it makes sense that we're, <laughs> we're bringing the ramen in. <laughs> uh, yeah, I only graduated last year. So I think these days are more, uh, very, it's bringing up more recent okay. <laughs> memories for me. Yeah. It's a fun, fun way to get a taste of, of college again. <laughs> Absolutely, it's funny, mm. when I was in college, I actually, didn't love ramen, mm -hmm. um, but it's funny, ever since college, I've developed an addiction to it, so I don't know what happened. It's, <laughs> it's the higher education part, I guess. It is. But um, before you went to college, you started out, um, you were homeschooled back in the 80s. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what that was, yeah, that I was, was like. Yeah, I was one of the original homeschoolers, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, homeschooling was not common at all in Florida mm -hmm. or anywhere else, and so um, my folks heard about homeschooling from the radio okay. and they said that sounds good to us. They weren't happy with the school options they had around them. They couldn't afford private school. Yeah. And so um, they wrote, literally wrote away for more information and got it back and, and found a way to do it, even though it wasn't quite legal in Florida at the time in the early 80s. And so, oh wow, uh, yeah, that, was my, that was my background. I homeschooled all the way K-12, so. Okay, yeah. and then, um, Eventually you became a teacher, you were working at a charter school. Um, what was that What was that experience like and how did that influence uh, and inspire you to end up where you are today? Well, so I think the, the great thing about working in that environment was I got to put into action a lot of the things that I cared about a lot, mm -hmm. both from a, you know, an educational perspective but then also serving students that wouldn't have had access to that kind of education mm -hmm. before. Um, and so that was really powerful, and it it inspired me in my work now, right? Because it, it taught me that policy is so important to um, to everyone's lives, and especially when it comes to education. There are a lot of problems we need to solve, and um, you can impact a lot of people by getting into public policy. So yeah, and what was it that you saw that the charter school offered that yeah. other public schools may not have? Yeah, so it was it was a charter school that was um, based on a classical model, classical education. So. They taught things like Latin and logic, and they taught you know civilization from the beginning all the way through, um, and they they taught it in a way that held students to a really high standard of education, and you know having having had a similar education because I majored in Latin and Greek, um, and I loved it. Um, 
When I saw the students that we were reaching, which were students that weren't necessarily students who could have afforded a private school education, um, thriving in that environment and their families, um, it was just it was a very powerful experience. And it, it really motivated me to want to get more into, into the space where I could offer, we could offer that to more students. That's fantastic. Yeah. Do you want to get the Diet Coke oh, roll yeah, in I'm, here? Let's do it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Necessary. All right. It definitely first. is. Oh, thank you. So what is it that, um, that homeschool offered you that you're that you're grateful for now and want to yeah so you see as something that's helped you in your life homeschooling is was very transformative to me right because mm -hmm. what it taught me was um, self-directed learning so that was a big part of it uh, we did have a curriculum that we followed but a lot of my time was field trips it was reading independently um, pursuing my passions and as a result you know on the one hand I came to college maybe with not the best you know, formal study habits. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, it instilled a lot of curiosity in me and a lot of intellectual um, openness, so to speak. And so that was what I think gave me a little bit of an edge once I got over the initial hump in college. And uh, it's what, what I wanted to keep pursuing and that's why I went on to get a master's degree, so yeah. yeah. Gotcha, well I think that's gonna be a great starting point to get into the rest of the education conversations yeah. we're gonna have today. Absolutely. Yeah, let's, let's move on over to the studio now. Awesome. Welcome back. We are here with the edition of The Policy Pulse. Um, so, Aaron, the Supreme Court just made a ruling. Students for fair admissions versus Harvard and University of North Carolina. They did. It was a landmark decision, and it came in the last days of the, of the uh, sort of window in which they could issue the decisions. Um, it will have great ramifications across the country. Essentially, Supreme Court ruled that you can't discriminate on the basis of race, uh, which should be fairly obvious to anyone who has lived in the United States or know, knows anything about what we stand for. Um, they made the decision based on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th mm -hmm. Amendment. Um, and essentially what was happening was, um, I'll speak, speak about Harvard to start with, they they were discriminating against Asian American students. And I would encourage you know the viewers to check out the facts of what they were actually doing and, and saying. And it was pretty significantly, too, when you saw like what the test scores were uh, with, it, with it, the, between students. It was. And so the, the issue there is, you know, Harvard essentially was um, giving a lot of... Um, giving a lot of shade <laughs> to Asian American students who are applying. And you can see that in the comments on mm -hmm. their applications. It was fairly egregious. Um, and so as a result, uh, the Supreme Court has made it very clear that universities can't uh, use the tactics that Harvard and, and UNC were using to exclude students on the basis of race. Yeah. And are they the only universities doing this? Or is this like across the board most universities like ivy leagues or it's it varies from school to school and state to state and so for instance actually california outlawed affirmative action back uh, i think it was in the, in the 90s um so in some states it's been illegal for quite a while in texas we have something called the top 10 percent rule mm -hmm. which essentially allows students who score in the top 10 percent grade point average of their high school to get automatic admission to a public university so different states have handled this differently in the past and um, so as a result if the states had been using similar tactics to what UNC and Harvard have been using, they, they have to adjust and change their ways. Gotcha. So uh, who will be impacted by this? I, I know you said like the Asian students mm -hmm. will be, obviously, mm -hmm. because they're the ones who are getting denied mm -hmm. unfairly. But is there anyone else who this is going to impact? I think it'll impact students who 
I think it will impact the way that um, colleges have to look at their incoming classes mm -hmm. and select their incoming classes. And they're going to have to really scrutinize um, their tactics and methods with their admissions departments. Now, uh, the Supreme Court explicitly said that it was still okay if a student wanted to mention um, their race in an essay and explain how they overcame challenges as a result of mm -hmm. that or discrimination um, as a reflection of their character, essentially. And so the, the colleges are allowed to to um, to take that into account when they allow students, but they're no longer allowed to just use race as sort of a blunt instrument mm -hmm. um, as, you know, a, a, an admissions uh, criterion. Yeah, I was actually thinking about this, and Ari, you're a recent college grad. Mm -hmm. So like filling out those essays, it's mm -hmm. been a hot second for me, but I remember, you know, I had to give my race and where I lived mm -hmm. and all of these little factors mm -hmm. that people could easily like write in their own opinion on or like have their yeah. own perception of like, oh, you're from like the south of an urban city. Like, mm, I don't know how I feel about that. Or wow, that's really diverse. Mm -hmm. We want that. So mm -hmm. do you think that they should like remove portions of that so that the um, applicants are just these truly blank campuses or is that taking away from the process? One thing that I haven't seen a lot of the commentariat uh, note is there probably ought to be a slight distinction or maybe even a major distinction between what public universities are allowed to do in terms of their mm. um, admissions um, and what private universities are, are um, given a little more leeway in. Um, in that case, you know, UNC and Harvard being one being public, one being private, mm -hmm. um, there might be, you know, in the future, the Supreme Court might make distinctions of that kind. Um, one really interesting proposal I heard once to kind of, I don't know, cut the Gordian knot here would be um, to sort of say, okay, we have one sort of set, um, either test score or other sort of academic readiness metric, um, and then it's blind after that, and it's random. So mm -hmm. let's say, you know, everybody was applying to, um, you know, UT Austin, they've only got a certain number of seats. Um, and then what they would do is essentially, it's a lottery, you know, everybody who qualified above that threshold, you put their name in the hat, and they pull that out, and you would get automatic sort of diversity on on in that way mm -hmm. because it would be randomized um, and there wouldn't be any. And we have a similar system kind of with the top 10 student or the 10% the thing. That was the intent. Like, yeah. yeah, that was the intent. The, the issue there and that what we've seen a little bit is that some high schools um, as in response to the top 10% rule um, have there's been some great inflation, let's just say at the high school level. Uh. Um, and you know, you can see why the incentive set is there um, for high schools, you yeah. know, who genuinely want their students to go on and be successful. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they there might be some there might be some gaming of the system there that might need to be looked at. So, yes, in theory, the top 10 percent rule would be more of a random, you know, sampling. But, yeah, there's been some there's been some questions. That about part that. I actually didn't know about. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So why do you think that we are giving these institutions, these colleges so much authority over students' lives. I think that's really the heart of the problem here. Um, essentially, I, th I think, you know, 30 years ago, maybe two generations ago, um, there was this push, right, for, you know, a more academic curriculum to fight the Cold War um, and be competitive um, with, our, with our adversaries abroad. Um, and that sort of translated into, well, how do we get there as a country? Like, mm -hmm. what's our big, you know, push? Well, if everybody went to college, everybody would be smarter and we could we could win, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, okay, yeah, college can be something that adds to your, some some people say it's your human capital, your, mm -hmm. your ability to, to thrive um, economically, socially, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Yes, that can be something that adds to that. But, 
you know, it's not the only thing. And so sometimes yeah. when you put a metric like that out there, well, we need more students going to college, finishing college, it kind of makes college into this um, gatekeeper, mm-hmm. right? And so then what, what happens? Well, they tell more and more students, you need to go to college to be successful. We need this as a country. Um, it's important for all of our goals. Well, who's deciding then? Well, the, the colleges and universities, right? And yeah. um, in that sense, it really gives them a lot of power to sort of shape uh, shape the future mm-hmm. and maybe, maybe power that we need to rethink. There might be other pathways to success. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I just have a quick follow-up question yeah. to that. Do you think that, and both of you guys, mm-hmm. you applying for jobs, you being a hiring manager, you know, there's a lot of pressure on applicants of like, you need to have a college degree. If mm-hmm. you don't have a college yeah. degree, like don't even bother applying to yeah. this job. Yeah. But do you think that maybe that needs to be reevaluated? I definitely think it does. And it's weird because I'm in like more in the film industry side of things. Mm-hmm. So having a college degree doesn't necessarily put you ahead of everyone because that's not an automatic requirement, Absolutely. which is why it's so weird whenever I see people going to get their master's for film, which is usually done after you haven't found a way to break into the industry. So it's another way to go about creating content, but mm-hmm. you spend a ton of money Uh, out of your own pocket in that process, which is weird. Um, But for other jobs outside of that, I think it is um, interesting the types of jobs that where, or things like guidance um, counselors for both high schools and college level, you need a master's degree to do that. And a lot of that is just putting schedules together, which is something that I would have been, I I love that sort of stuff and like putting together my own schedule, but I wasn't about to go pay for a master's to go do something that doesn't require that level of education to do competently. So I, I definitely think that needs to be shifted. Well, I mean, yeah. you, you hit on something so important there. Um, you know, the, the role of the government, right, whether it's state or federal, probably shouldn't be telling private employers, you know, what criteria they should be using for hiring, whether they mm. should or shouldn't require a college degree. But there's another way to kind of go about this and to show some leadership and open it up a little bit for applicants. And, and one of those is to simply remove degree requirements from state jobs. And so we've seen other states, you know, go this direction. Um, and Maryland did it, Virginia, um, other states have, have pushed on this. And essentially, if you re- remove a degree requirement, from hiring as sort of the screening mechanism, right, mm-hmm. to get in yeah. the door, um, unless it's like a you know a job that's an attorney and you need someone with a law degree, that kind of thing. Um, what you see is private employers can look around and say, okay, well, you know, if they're doing it, we've got to stay competitive. We can't, you know, yeah. so it kind of it, it is a lever without being a a forced thing on private on private industry. So it starts with the government, lets the free market yeah. do its thing from there. Yeah, yeah. And so that's that's such an important point, you know, and I think we see employers kind of want to dip a toe in this, but mm-hmm. they have these questions. They, how do you validate skills? How do you know someone knows how to do something? Those kinds of things. And so, you know, a lot of the new innovative uh, thinking in this space is about validating skills mm-hmm. outside of necessarily the four-year degree uh, context and, you know, portfolios, like you, you mentioned in creative fields, like, yeah. hey, did, can you do a video? Can you record a podcast? That yeah. kind of thing um, are far more powerful for, for employers. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. And speaking about like those perverse incentives uh-huh. that are now created to force everyone into college, yeah. I think this is a great place to jump into our pop culture with politics <laughs> segment. So, pop culture um, principles. Oh, pop culture with <laughs> principles. Sorry, did I say politics? No, yeah. we're done with politics. Now to pop culture. Um, so there is a documentary that Aaron had Taylor and I watch, which I actually really liked. It's called um, Operation Varsity Blues, the College Admission Scandal. And I think it was on Amazon Prime, right? And Netflix. 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 Yeah. Yeah. It was Netflix, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so 
let's let's jump into talking yeah. about that because I think it just really highlighted some of the problems that we were mentioning or what comes from it. So do you want to give us an overview of what the yeah? The doc so was about? a few years ago, you probably heard about it in the news. It's pretty pretty big story. Uh, it had a celebrity angle to it, which I think was a big part of why it became big news. Uh, essentially, what was what was happening was there was this um, independent college counselor who was selling his services to very wealthy, very powerful people, essentially to um, create admissions packages, portfolios uh, to get their sons and daughters into elite colleges and uh, prestigious colleges, which is a word we'll come back to in a second. And so I think what was super interesting was it was eye-opening to people, the lengths that folks would go to, who, people who already had everything. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they had the world at their fingers and, and what they were trying to get, what they were trying to buy was this... Um, social prestige, essentially, of getting into Harvard or Stanford or, or colleges like that. And um, what just kind of blew everybody away was, you know, he had people take their SATs for them, right? There was a total scam going on with that. Uh, there was photoshopping going on of students who couldn't play water polo. But that was a weird one that <laughs> really stuck out to me. Like, as a graphic designer, I was watching it and I was like, okay, so someone like me who has my skill set <laughs> yeah. took this photo of this like kid in the water and then cut his face out and put it on like this ripped athletic like fully professional athlete and i was like how how did that happen how did they and a lot of the kids didn't know it was even happening right like they that's a good point or some of them I, I to me that struck me as one of the most sort of disturbing and horrifying angles to this was that the FBI captured all of these conversations on wiretaps. The documentary essentially is just a reenactment of the wiretaps. It's the wiretaps between the coach admissions guy uh -huh. and who, the parents. And the parents. Yeah. So in some cases with the coaches in question. And so um, there, there were these conversations with parents saying, can you do this in such a way that my kid doesn't know what I'm doing because I don't want them to feel bad. And wow, you know, um, Wow. Uh, that's and then they'll never know like yeah. how what kind of school their kids would have gotten into otherwise without right. that right we never will and and when one of the uh, young ladies featured you know she seemed to have a pretty promising career going into makeup artistry or she was being like an influencer, an influencer. Yeah. and she, yeah. who uh, who was the celebrity it was Olivia I'm sorry I don't know have her name on the tip of my tongue no but, sorry yeah. sorry I'm yeah. but it was the yeah. mom who was in Full House right yes. oh, I can't yes. remember the name yeah. and it was her yeah. daughter was like super influential mm -hmm. as an influencer yeah <laughs> influential number. Yeah. Um, but she was like doing a great job and sure it's not everyone's taste and you know you can always you know you can say that's not a career field but she her daughter seemed to be doing very very well but yes. because the story erupted and she said she wasn't aware of it yeah um, the daughter said she wasn't aware of it uh -huh. the mom like went down in flames I'm sure we mm -hmm. all heard about yeah. it the daughter like she lost all her followers people started cyberbullying her and yeah. like I don't really know what ended up happening with her because she had this trajectory she didn't need to go to this Ivy League like no. you said she had everything no. and then this just like really it seemed like blew up her whole life it, and that's the, that's the just the tragedy of all this. You know, I think there's a lot of questions about, you know, should the FBI be involved in this at all? There's all kinds of other questions about that. But really what it what it showed was 
this is not an isolated thing. This mm-hmm. is obviously something that folks from every level of our society, whether you're, you know, just a first generation college student, whether you have everything in the world, there's this enormous pressure, whether it's to be economically mobile in the case of students who are first generation, perhaps, or, you know, climb the, the ladder of prestige, right, in the case of the students who did have um, a wealthy background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what is that? Um, what do you think the benefit is for them, like them trying to get prestige or this access to these colleges? It's There's this um, concept in economics called a Veblen good. Um, it has to do with like the scarcity of something. Um, it doesn't It doesn't lead to more supply of that thing. It actually makes it cost more and more and more. So a handbag, for instance, um, you know, that's a designer handbag would be an example of this, right? You know, just because there's demand for that handbag doesn't mean that that luxury, um, you know, supplier is going to create more, right? Because they they want to keep the supply constrained, Mm -hmm. right? Well, if you apply that to higher ed, you see exactly the same dynamic. They're not expanding the number of seats that they could have. I mean, Harvard has an endowment of what fifty-three billion, something in that range. Billion with a B. Students, they could they could pay for every student to attend for free forever, um, double the salary of their faculty probably. They could even they, expand the school. They could build more seats for the school essentially. Mm-hmm. So. They absolutely could, and yet they choose not to. And you have to ask yourself, well, what what are the incentives there? Well, the incentives are clearly not to serve the demand. Mm. The incentive is to keep it elite and small and as as, um, sort of a luxury good as possible. So I think you see that dynamic with the the families that were – featured in this in this documentary is that's what they were chasing and and that doesn't like we don't like to think about higher ed as that kind of a commodity but i really do think that was at play in in this case at least and it's not quite the same thing when you're talking about students who may come from a different background or trying to get into maybe a state school that kind of thing but um the the drive that you have to go to college is kind of the same yeah 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 um yeah that show the Everyone should watch it because it's super fascinating. Um, but the way that it ended was mm-hmm. so unfulfilling, mm-hmm. not because it was a bad story, not mm-hmm. because it was a bad documentary, but because the guy himself ended up turning on, sorry, this is a spoiler alert, mm-hmm. <laughs> ended up turning on the families and wearing the wiretaps. That's how mm-hmm. they got all these phone mm-hmm. calls. Mm-hmm. And like he didn't get in trouble at the end of the day it's like it was a white collar crime and he got like a slap on the wrist and had to pay a fine like Mm -hmm. right yeah so that's that's the thing is that you know in normal racketeering cases you know they would go after the kingpin and they let everybody off with a slap on the wrist to take down the kingpin yeah in this case it was a little bit the opposite of that and that that that's the part where you know the person who's questioning what you know what the prosecutorial strategy was what Mm. the background of that was that did strike me as being a little bit of a opportunity for let's take down some rich people let's take down some famous people there's a little bit of element of class envy maybe there but again the point being we now have a document that shows exactly what um what families will do to get their kids in these colleges yeah yeah well everyone should check it out it is super interesting. Um, let's move on to the conservative council. We have a question. Sarah from Benton, Texas asks, um, I just began my career as an elementary school teacher. It's taken very little time for me to see the faults in our education system. What can I do about this? It's a really great question. Um, I was talking with Ariana earlier about you know how I started out as a school teacher. Mm-hmm. 
and quickly learned that there's a lot I can do in the classroom to help students and I can educate myself and I can, you know, try hard to impact the school, the school environment, the leadership, make sure the students have the best materials and I'm mm -hmm. as prepared as I can be, um, that I do all of those things. Um, and so, yeah, I would encourage, I would, on the one hand, encourage you just keep being a better professional, keep learning and learning and learning because that, that helps your students. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are other opportunities to get engaged, right? And so looking at your school, you're, you're kind of an expert on the incentives structures at your school. You know, if you see something wrong um, with the system, think about that, look into it, research that, mm -hmm. you know, why is it that we do it this way? You know, ask your leadership, try to get to the bottom of those questions because sometimes those are public policy questions where there is a law or there mm -hmm. is a rule. Sometimes they're just, you know, bad habits or they're just instantiated ways of doing things. So learning to discern the the underlying reasons for things, right, mm -hmm. is really important. Um, and then if you discover it's policy and then you feel that tug on your heart, hey, there's something I can do about that, to think about, well, what would it take for me to impact this policy? Would that mean reaching out to my local representative or senator about this issue? Um, would that mean getting involved in a campaign to fix it? Um, would that mean, you know, learning about policy myself so that I can I can get into the game and start affecting it directly? So mm -hmm. there are all some things to think about, but um, you start start first by looking at what you're doing and the scope of influence you have, and then ask questions. I like it. I yeah. like that you specifically said focus on the incentives, yeah, like always right. follow the incentives. Absolutely. That is where you will find so much depth of understanding Absolutely. is when you understand the incentive structure. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And so we have another question from Tara in Houston. Uh, she said, I'm a mid-level I'm mid-level in my career and I'm surrounded by a few boss ladies. <laughs> I'd love to be mentored by one, but I'm too intimidated to ask. How do I how do I go about that? It's a really good question. Um, so when I transitioned from being uh, in in the education field as a teacher and as an administrator, um, I got involved in a program that was for mid-career professionals that essentially introduced us to policy, but really not policy. It was the philosophy behind the policy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's fascinating to me. It fit fit what I was looking for. And the program was run by, by a woman. Um, and when I saw how she ran the program and what she was interested in and the the policy discussion she was a part of and the people she got to influence, I thought that's kind of what I want to do. That's my next phase in my Love career. It. And so I remember on the way home from one of these programs, I, you know, my husband was part of the program with me. I said, I said, Jeremy, you know, I think I want Lynn to be my mentor. And I want to figure really out a way cool. to make her my mentor. Yeah. And it was a little bit, I felt like I was a little bit stretching myself. I was nervous, like, well, I'm nobody. Like, why would she talk to me? Like, I don't know anything, you know, mm -hmm. kind of a little bit bashful. Yeah. But I'm really glad I overcame that, um, that questioning of myself and reached out and said, can we just get coffee, you know? That's awesome. And it started with that. And from there, we became friends. She still is a friend. And she opened doors for me in the in the policy and philanthropy space, which I went into later. Um, and I, you know, to this day, I'm deeply grateful. And I, I try to do that as much as I can for the young women and, and even women who aren't as young in my, in my life um, because someone did that for me. So That's awesome. Um, so I wrote down a question here because I... Um, you know, starting out in graphic design mm -hmm. and had this passion for like justice and getting involved in this whole process. You know, it was, um, I felt like I just kind of fell into the policy area. Mm -hmm. It was just like a door open and I just mm -hmm. stumbled through. Um, but more specifically, how can young women and just people in general get more involved in policy? Like what is something very digestible that someone can do? 
well, if you live in Texas, TPPF has a number of programs that we offer here. So if you're interested, you know, check out our website. We have internship opportunities. So our summer internship class is starting to come to a close. And uh, it's a great internship. We pour a lot into our interns. We have amazing young people that apply for it. Um, just incredible. Yeah, I think every summer our interns get better and better. They really it's, do. It's really impressive, I, actually. I don't okay, know is how that a humble brag because Ariana started <laughs> no, no, out I, as well, our I'm intern. Saying the current and got interns are way cooler than <laughs> I am. Is what I'm saying. Well, it's, it's incredible, and, and you know, I'll give you an example. I was on my way up here uh, to to talk to y'all, and I ran into some of our former interns, Aww. who are now chiefs of staff or committee directors at the Capitol. And you know yeah. why they're here? They're wanting to talk to people about, you know, opportunities to work, you know, for lawmakers because they know this is where to recruit. They know this is where to come. So I would say look for internships, look Mm -hmm. for fellowships. So if you're not in Texas, you know, maybe there's a a nationally based think tank that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. You know, they almost always have some sort of fellowship program for people who aren't quite interns, um, some sort of opportunity to attend programs like at TPPF. We have the Liberty Leadership Council, uh, Liberty Leadership Council. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, And that's for young adults to get involved Mm -hmm. up to up to age 40. So I've aged out, but um, it's a great program. And they have it in a bunch of cities across Texas. Mm-hmm. And you can learn about policy. You know, we, we go out to these and talk to folks and they have lawmakers come out. And so I would just encourage you to look at the think tanks in your area. Look at the policy, um, you know, shops in your area and, and uh, just start going to their events. Most of them are free. <laughs> so check it out. That's and awesome. usually they include food, which is a big food incentive and, food to go and beverages do if you're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, I'm just saying the Liberty Leadership Council, their annual summit is coming up in November. So definitely take a peek at that. Look into it. Um, the branding is going to be super cool and patriotic. <laughs> I actually saw it a few weeks ago because whenever we were talking about something, it actually is pretty cool. Good job, I Taylor. Was <laughs> I designed it. Humble brag. Uh-huh. <laughs> we all got to get one. Um, did you have a question, Ari? Um, I guess what would, um, are there anywhere that people can go to if they want to learn more about this just on their own? Because I feel like you don't know what you don't know. So how did, how do you recommend just starting to learn more? I mean, if you're interested in Texas specifically, you can go to our website, which is texaspolicy.com, and you can go to our issue page and check out um, the research we have on higher education, workforce. Um, We have a number of commentaries that are up there, so it's a little more digestible, Mm -hmm. a little more entry level. We have all of our research up there. Now we're having more podcasts and other other products that you can check out. So I just start by going to our website, and if there's something of interest, just type that into the search bar, and I bet we have something that will hook you in. That's perfect. And then last thing, is there any literature recommendations for students um, about like higher education? Wow, that's a great question. Actually, the first book, because I, I, I helped to um, help the intern program every year. We have this thing called Philosophy of Freedom where mm-hmm. different policy people come in and give them a little talk about kind of the principles behind um, what we do here at TPPF. And so um, there are actually a few a few recommendations there. The first one is a book that came out not too long ago by uh, Yuval Levin, who's at the American Inter- Enterprise Institute, called A Time to Build. And this is a little more broad than just higher education, which I think is one of the values of it. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of goes across and looks at institutions in America. So these are civil society institutions, right? Um, and 
examines kind of how they seem to be unraveling a little bit and uh, deteriorating in some ways. And part of this is because of the influence of social media. Folks are treating those um, institutions like a platform mm -hmm. rather than the formative thing that they should be. Chapter five of that book is specifically on higher education. It's one of the best um, sort of introductions to the, to the issues facing American higher education. Mm -hmm. So I highly recommend uh, that book. Um, yeah, I, I would start there. Um, there's another book that's kind of a good background book on kind of some of the deeper cultural issues that are playing into this this uh, tension that we see in our society between sort of maybe elite class folks and, you know, everybody else in a sense. Mm -hmm. And that book is called Coming Apart by Charles Murray. And uh, it, he was kind of prophetic in that book, predicted a lot of the dynamics that led to the 2016 election mm. and a lot of things that we're dealing with now. And so, you know, it's just a background to understand the core issues. I'd recommend those two books. And then you can, of course, dive into books by Cardinal Newman um, and, uh, and other sort of more deep books. But I, I would I would start there. What about The Coddling of the American Mind? Because I read that last year and, oh, <laughs> somebody has Total a page. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> She's very popular. <laughs> I thought I'd turn it off. Okay. <laughs> um, the Coddling of the American yes. Mind. That was a great one. Yes. Um, a pastor of mine recommended it. And it totally changed like my outlook mm -hmm. on the whole system. But it also super cool quoted our organization right on crime. Like directly quote, I couldn't believe it. Like our research wow. is in a nationally so cool. produced <laughs> Absolutely. book. Like that was awesome. Yeah. Um, well, those are great recommendations, Erin. You are so awesome. You are changing the game. Students throughout the future have to come and thank you one day because you're making such a huge change here. She really is. Um, yeah. And like she said, if you guys want to get involved, like come and intern for us. That yeah. would be awesome. If you want to follow Aaron, do you want to go ahead and plug your socials? Yes, if I can remember. So mm -hmm. on Twitter, I'm at Aaron Valdez TX, and I'm probably most engaged on, on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, as That's my favorite and uh, medium for social media. It's not great, but that's what I do. Um, <laughs> and then I would also, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Mm -hmm. So those are probably the two best ways to, to check it out. Perfect. Yeah. Well, thanks, y'all, for joining us for another episode of the Sweet Tea Series. We had a great time chatting with Ari and Aaron, and we will see you guys next week. Bye.